Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about The World Is Not Enough, starring Pierce Brosnan, Denise Richards, Robert Carlyle, Sophie Marceau, Robbie Coltrane, and Judi Dench, directed by Michael Apted. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is Arnie. And I want more. The podcast is not enough. <laughs> Podcasting only comes once a year. I wish! Twice a week (laughs) (laughs) that's right folks you're getting double bond these few weeks so we can go right into skyfall with an absolute bang i know it's out today i would love to be just running out and reviewing it and seeing it but we got to do it sequentially guy we've got to stick with this a couple more weeks we will get to skyfall but first we got to finish with brosnan and here's one that i never saw world is not enough i didn't know word one about this one other than it had denise richards and i had heard the garbage song other than that i couldn't have told you one thing about it this was the first brosnan one i did not see in theaters and when this came out i was dating my now wife marjorie and she'd never seen a james bond film and so we rented this on video and i'm like oh it's great i love james bond i love the brosnan ones and in my defense i did recommend both brosnan ones so i'll stand by that (laughs) and we watched this and she was a big austin powers fan but had never seen the source material and she's cracking up going this is terrible but oh my god it's exactly like austin powers i thought mike myers was making it crazier but you get a line christmas comes only once a year and that's right in line with anything a lot of vagina so i was pretty chagrined and it would create an atmosphere where i would never be able to get my wife to see james bond in theaters until i put a gun to her head and go i have to go for the show dear skyfall (laughs) this one for me marks two memories for me. The first one was that last line you mentioned, Christmas Comes Once a Year, was the moment I realized I could never watch another James Bond movie with my mother ever again. And this was also the one, whenever I say I'm going to watch a Bond movie, the wife always says, is this the moment Denise Richards every single time? And when I mentioned this week, yeah, I'm watching the one with Denise Richards. She's like, yeah, I'm not going to watch that. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. It's okay. But it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like a running gag. And she says, let me know when you get to Craig. I'm like, next week, dear. Next week. So anyway... <laughs> World is Not Enough, 1999, the last Bond film of the millennium. They wanted to make sure that they marked the occasion with this movie, and clearly they did. I would love to get into this movie, Arnie. Is the plot summary enough? No, the plot summary isn't enough because I'm going to start before the movie. Before the movie starts, Electra King, daughter of oil tycoon Sir Robert King, was kidnapped and held for ransom by terrorist Renard. 
Rather than pay the ransom, M convinced King to use his daughter as bait to catch the terrorist and almost killed him, putting a bullet in his brain that is slowly killing him, but also making it so he can't feel anything, including pain. But Renard escapes, and Electra is recovered. And when the movie begins, Bond is on assignment again helping Sir King, retrieving money from a Swiss banker. But the money is booby-trapped, and when King gets near it, a bomb goes off, killing the oil tycoon. Emma assigns Bond to watch over Electra, thinking Renard may target her again, and Bond becomes very close to the heiress, sleeping with her while also helping to protect the oil pipeline that she is installing. But in fact, Electra is in league with Renard. She wants revenge for being used as bait, wanting to kill her father and M, and also set off a bomb that will give her oil pipeline a monopoly. Bond teams with nuclear physicist Christmas Jones, played, of course, by Denise Richards, who else do you go to for a nuclear physicist, to find the plutonium stolen from Jones's Russian base. M is kidnapped, and Bond and Christmas are assumed dead after a plutonium-laden bomb explodes, but the two survive and infiltrate Elektra's base, rescue M, kill Elektra, and in a submarine battle, Bond has the nuclear reactor overload, killing Renard, and Bond spends time unwrapping his Christmas present as credits roll. So I have a distinct memory of sitting in the movie theater watching The World Is Not Enough. Next to your mother. Next to my mother. Not uncomfortable yet. And... The whole thing with the bank scene happens, the sniper, etc. And then I'm waiting for the opening song to start. And it doesn't start! And then it has seven, eight more minutes until it starts. I look at my watch, it's like 15 minutes in. I'm like, good lord, this is a long opening sequence. It felt like it. It is the longest to date. It is 14 and a half minutes long. Ah. Here's the thing that I would claim, though. I think they cheat. I think that they're tired of doing these opening sequences like we used to have in the Moore and Connery era. I don't consider this an opening sequence. I almost consider this to be like Robocop 2, the movie that doesn't have opening credits. Then like 15 minutes in, they're like, oh shit, the director's guild says we have to put these here. Because this opening is not a different mission. This opening, much like they've done with the previous two, but this one more than most, is just the start of the movie. It's not an action scene of Bond's last adventure to make you realize how cool he is and get you invested in it. No, this entire thing is completely intimately tied to the rest of the film. I feel like they just skipped the opening scene and decided they're going to start with the movie and the movie opens on an action scene. The fact that it's pre-credits is arbitrary. Well, you're half right. They previewed the movie with Bond after he gets out of the window when he uses the core and he goes to the ground and he walks away with a suitcase on the bridge. It was supposed to go to credits there. But people found it very unsatisfactory. That was the big stunt and the big opening of a James Bond movie. So they decided to add the boat chase, which is supposed to happen after the credits, to beforehand to give it a bigger action scene. And of course, because they did that and they already filmed it, etc., they had all that plot and exposition to get through. So it wasn't the original intention, but they did it to soup up the opening of the movie. I was thrown by this. It is a weird place to begin here. Bond is in disguise, talking with a Swiss banker who is not in Switzerland. They're in Spain. They're next to the cool Frank Gehry Art Museum. And he's both avenging 0012, who's been killed, and on a mission for this guy we haven't met yet, Robert King. I didn't understand what anything was going on. I usually don't. I appreciate the action to get me hopped up, because usually we don't understand the plot until after a few scenes where someone finally says in M's office, hey, this is what you're going to do, this is what it's about, and here's the way you're going to go. Did you guys not think that this opening was not only anticlimactic, but just incoherent? 
I still don't understand exactly why MI6 is the personal recon agency for this Sir King. Right. It's established that M had a friendship with them, maybe even a love affair that goes back to Oxford. That's established later, by the way. But yes, why she would mix business with friendship, it just doesn't feel like a Bond mission. They throw in the fact that 0012 was killed for this money to make it a Bond mission, but it just garbles everything. And then there's a sniper who we're going to find out was Renard. I don't even understand any of this. But I got to say, thank God they cut it this way, because this boat chase sequence is all kinds of awesome. All kinds. And it's the first time they ever shot anything like that on the Thames River, which was supposed to be a big deal. It means nothing to me. I'm not from London, but apparently a big deal. What always confuses me about this opening scene is the sniper shoots the guy behind Bond, and then Bond goes out the same window. Doesn't he think the sniper's going to get him too? Clearly he understands that he's not going to get shot. It doesn't make any sense. Every time I watch it, I'm confused by that. I'm confused that the sniper is there at all. They had a bomb. The whole point was to blow up something. The sniper's there just in case it blows a hole that gives her a shot in at other agents. This seems superfluous. No, the sniper is there to get Bond out of there with the money. 0012, which I never knew they go up that high, gets killed. They have the sniper there all to make sure Bond goes back to MI6 because MI6 was involved. But you're absolutely right. The first time you watch the movie, you know none of that. And they're throwing you right in the middle of something, and they're trying to make you catch up as the movie goes. If you watch it again, Stuart, it makes complete sense. Okay, so the plan was blow up Robert King with his pen when it gets in contact with the money, and then you'll have a straight shot to kill Bond as well. Yeah, the idea was MI6 would blow up as well as Roger King. Okay. Together. Yeah, all that worked. All right. Anyway, I love the boat chase. I love the fact that it is the real opener. They should have just done this. Cut the thing in Spain at all. Bond just brought him the money. It blows up. Have this boat chase. We didn't need Spain. This is the good stuff, and we would have gotten to it quicker if they had done that. Yeah, I love the bat boat. Exactly. It's a bat boat. It goes underwater. It's black. I'm really surprised we didn't see Christian Bale driving it recently. Hey, this is way before any of that stuff. If anything, Batman stole from Bond. Okay, I'm surprised I didn't see Michael Keaton driving it. (laughs) (laughs) There was a bat boat in the second one, yeah. Yeah, it's all kinds of fun. And you mentioned that this is Millennial Bond. Well, yeah, the climax ends at the Millennium Dome and and a hot air balloon. I didn't see that coming. I got to say, that's very un-techy, uncool way to end a great boat chase. But I really love this action scene. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think it is peaking the movie early. We're never going to get a scene as good as this one. That's because we're going to realize what the movie's about. But I do remember from my readings way back when, for some reason, the millennium was a great time to spend lots of taxpayer money the world around. And I remembered reading about how the Millennium Dome, this would be the first movie to feature that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a 1999 release. Yeah, everyone was wanting to capitalize on that. Sure. And they use it well to have a plot point for the movie. They have Bond get injured. Bond doesn't usually get injured to the point where it incapacitates him for the remainder of the movie. And I kind of dug that, and I like how they did it. They had him do it because he did one of his James Bond stunts. He jumps out of a boat onto the hot air balloon, and he has to jump to save his life, and he gets hurt. I think that's great. With all this plot going on and Bond getting hurt, it tells me they're going for something different this time than last time, and at this point in the movie, I'm happy they are. Tomorrow Never Dies is so light on plot, and right after this boat scene, you go right into more exposition and more plot, and you have more scenes that have meat to it. And apparently that's what they're really going for here, but I like the fact that everyone seems like Judy Dench gets scenes and Pierce Brosnan gets scenes. They're trying to have a little more plot and character in this one, as opposed to what happened last time. And you mentioned M and MI6, and 
I did enjoy seeing a few of the old Connerisms come back. I remember they did this once with more, but I always liked how it was a habit that you'd have Bond flirting with Money Penny and not realize M is listening in on the speakerphone. And they <laughs> do that here. I was surprised they made a Monica Lewinsky cigar joke, but th- I think that would have made you uncomfortable right there with your mother. <laughs> I didn't get that as Monica Lewinsky, but you're right. It would have been at the right time. It was also just a popular time for cigars, cigar bars. That was just in the culture there, and it's phallic. It's a way of playing with that. But Money Penny says, I know just where to put that. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, okay, sure. And it's not an anti-smoking thing, despite the fact she throws it out. What I am struck by in this plot is this is the first time that we see kind of M driven by Vendetta. Usually, we've had a couple here, Honor Majesty's Secret Service or License to Kill, where Bond gets mad and maybe he goes beyond duty to get revenge. Well, here, M is pushing Bond to avenge her friend here. That There's no real reason why Bond has to become a personal bodyguard for this woman, but it's only because of M's relationship with Robert King that Bond goes on the adventure that he does. I briefly thought M was Electra's mother because when she's giving all that exposition about the backstory about Electra being kidnapped and everything, and oh my god, if a movie ever needed a flashback scene, it was this one to do the show don't tell. But while she's just sitting there rattling off this long, convoluted backstory, one line she says is ignoring all my instincts as a mother. And I'm like, you're Electra's mother? <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought that, and I think if flashback, don't they have a video of her at some point right after she's being debriefed after she got kidnapped? I think the whole idea of the movie, they're trying to mislead you the whole time. You have a flashback scene that might tip your hand pretty early in the movie that she's not who she says she is. Then how about doing what they did with Goldeneye and making the opening scene be this kidnapping retrieval and then go into the main body of the movie where it spawns out of this rather than having... A data dump. I hate data dumps. Yeah, this movie is full of that stuff. And yeah, I found this confusing and not a good hook. If we didn't have that great boat chase, I don't know what I would have been paying attention to here. It's certainly not the dialogue. One of the real disconnects about this movie and this Bond is that they really go for yucks. The punchlines in this movie are nonstop. And yet the action has no comedy. They're playing it like it's a Dalton movie, but they're writing it like it's a Moore movie. And it's such a strange (laughs) disconnect that you have these scenes of pay the piper, pipe down, you're well suited when he's going through the cue gadgets. And I'm just like, you know, Bond has one or two of these. Selectively, you pick the best and go with it. But his entire dialogue is groan-inducing puns. That was primarily during the cue scene. No, everywhere. Yeah, all right. I first noticed it in the cue scene, and I always give the cue scenes a little bit of leeway. It's almost like I've started to view Bond movies as variety shows where, oh, here's the opening monologue. Oh, here's the funny stand-up routine of cue and moving on. I do like the fact, though, that we are introduced to, I guess they call him R, John Cleese, We've seen throughout this retrospective series, Bond actors age and Bond actors go, but Desmond Llewellyn as Q perhaps is the one out of all of them that I gave a damn about. Stuart, I know you had a thing for Money Penny. I was never with you. Desmond Llewellyn I liked, but it's quite obvious he's getting way up there in years to start setting him up to retire slash possibly die, I think is good. And thank God they did because he did die. 
Yeah, they sure did. They got timing on that perfectly. I really liked the, the puns in the cue scenes. I thought that was funny. The very broad comedy with John Cleese in that scene. I'm with Arnie. I give more in those cue scenes because that's what I want in a cue scene. I want the silly jokes. Stuart, I was not bothered by the puns in this movie, in fact. Except for the Christmas one. The Christmas one at the end was a yes. huge groaner. But I didn't really mind the dialogue as much as you did, Stuart. I actually enjoyed the plot and the acting in the scenes. I'm not saying it was the world's greatest writing, but I liked the actors doing what they were doing and the puns didn't bother me. The world's greatest pun is not enough. Yeah. But you see the disconnect. They're not doing anything funny. This movie's kind of stark. It's almost fun deficient. They're playing this like Honor Majesty's Secret Service or one of the more serious Bonds. No one is being funny, particularly Brosnan, which is why it's weird when he's walking around saying we have a plutonic relationship and all of these terrible one-liners. It just doesn't fit what Brosnan is doing. Brosnan looks like he would rather eat plutonium than say these lines. <laughs> Last time, the puns were so bad and completely out of character for like M and Moneypenny. I think we talked about that last episode. For here, it didn't bother me as much, maybe because the last one was so horrible to me with the dialogue. This one was an improvement. Speaking of dialogue, in the cue scene, he gives Bond his parting words. I always try to give you two things. Never let them see you bleed and always have an escape plan. Now, we've watched... How many James Bond movies before? And I'm the James Bond fan here, folks. I don't recall Q saying those things to him often, if ever, before. His advice to him was a wonderful exit line, perhaps, but weird that he said it. Well, if you think about it, every time Bond's in a trap, the Q gadget that is his escape plan. So That's true. I'll go with the second half. The bleeding's kind of out of nowhere, but the escape <laughs> plan makes perfect sense. I think it's metaphorical bleeding. It's the fact that Bond is injured, his collarbone is broken or near broken, and he's going to have to go through this adventure pretending that he is not hurt. I think that's what he's alluding to here. Don't let anyone know that you're not at 100%. And the escape plan thing, Arnie, you might have a point there, but on the other hand, I'm not sure how many times Bond really has the whole thing planned out ahead of time. He usually uses the gadget to get himself out of a spot as opposed to a, an escape plan. All right, maybe it's Q who had the plan, but that's what he's trying to teach him. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Well, Stuart, if you're not liking the writing of the dialogue, I'm not liking the writing of the story. Because you say that this backstory is confusing, and I'm right there with you until the funeral scene where the old man dies, the oil tycoon. It all crystallizes for me when we're at the funeral and we're introduced to his daughter, Electra. Now, first, I expect her to be a ninja assassin wearing red. But then I realize, wait, no, this writer actually knows his myths. Electra killed her daddy, and I know immediately who the bad guy is. <laughs> yeah, just like Giannis in GoldenEye was a tell that there was going to be two of the same one. If you know your literature, then this is a dead giveaway. And I don't think that this is supposed to be an incredible surprise, right? Electra is the villainess. That's kind of telegraphed early. I think what they're playing with is that we're to think that she is under the control of Renard, and that Renard is really puppeting her, and that she may break free. Kind of like Octopussy. Octopussy was a jewel thief that was working with Louis Jordan, and she eventually realized that he was messed up in worse things and got away. I think that's what we're supposed to think about Electra here, is that she's a bad girl, but she may, in fact, see the light of day by the end of it. Bond may save her from going all full evil. That's not how I saw this played at all. I saw the movie telling me, this is the good girl, this is the first girl, this is the girl Bond's here to protect. I think, and Brock, you're going to have to be the tiebreaker as the fan, but I saw this movie 
as it's a big twist. Oh my god, she's evil? They were going for, oh my god, the Bond girl is the villain? Yes, they were going for that. And the Electra thing, I don't know my stories very well, so I did not pick it up as fast as Arnie did. I did get it faster than the movie told me. But the movie was hoping to surprise everybody because the Bond girls are never bad. Not too bad, anyway. Yeah, they played with this thing before with Octopussy, but that's where I was thinking on this. I didn't think that she would be the main villain. I'm not sure that she is. Physically, Sophie Marceau is really reminding me of Melina from For Your Eyes Only, to the point that I actually started calling her Melina at times. I guess in that way, it was making me think that she was going to be an altruistic character as well at the end. The funny thing about Sophia Marceau is that I didn't know she was an actress. I thought she was a model. I know her primarily from another movie that came out this year, a little David Spade movie called Lost and Found. <laughs> you haven't seen Braveheart by any chance? <laughs> I have seen it, but I don't remember her in it. I've seen it twice. She was the girl in Braveheart. That's what I know her from as well. I thought the girl in Lost and Found was some model for her really piss-poor acting ability. I thought, well, they hired a looker, not an actress. And so when I saw her in this this time, I'm like, oh my god, it's the girl from the dog movie with David Spade. Okay, she can act, so she just chose not to with David Spade? Yeah, I think she gets a good performance here. I actually like what she was doing. They actually considered the assassin in the first scene for the role, but her English was not strong. So they went to Sophie, and apparently she's French. Yeah. A name like Sophie Marceau, go figure. Uh, but she really does well with the English, and I think she does quite well. Only a couple of lines here and there, I think, got in the way of her understanding of the English language. But I really did like her performance in this, and I'm glad, Arnie, you said that, because it can go either way. If you're buying into the character, and you said you didn't, Arnie, because you figured it out really early, would you enjoy the performance that she was giving? And I'm glad to hear that you did. I thought she was good. But like I said, I wasn't looking at her to play the villainess. When I ultimately realized that she was the main bad, that Renard was in fact a henchman that was a weird flip I didn't quite go with because well she's killed first before Renard Renard ends up getting the final fight but she's the big bad I feel like there's a weird disconnect there but no doubt about it Sophia Marceau is a good casting for this I like her she's beautiful she works in this movie she's one of the best things about the movie hey henchmen have lived before don't forget knickknack or Jaws or Kleb the henchman often lives longer than the mastermind and I also figured Renard was a henchman because he had a superpower. And I don't think we've ever seen a superpowered big boss. They always have the superpowered henchman, right? Well, I, what's his name had webbed hands. <laughs> Superpower, webbed hands. <laughs> really good for swimming. Yeah. <laughs> and while we're on this never seen, the only thing that threw me for a loop on Electra, but if she wasn't the big bad, the naming was just terrible. But We've never seen a female big bad before, have we? I went through my notes on all the previous ones, and the closest we came is Octopussy, and that was a fooled you because she wasn't the big bad. She ended up fighting with Bond at the end. Right. It's exactly right. That's the whole point. Is This is the first time they ever had a female villain, and they're supposed to think she's the Bond girl because Bond falls for her, etc., etc. That's exactly what they're going for. Who created who, though? She was kidnapped by someone named Renard. She was good then, right? Renard perverted her, and then she flipped the tables and had Renard come work for her to, on a revenge plot against her father, right? But ultimately, it was Renard that set all of this in motion that corrupted her. So in some ways, he is the ultimate evil, the ultimate responsible one. I think, and Brock, as the fan, you've seen this more than me. Yeah. But I think they mention Renard was working for someone when they kidnapped her. Right. 
He was more like a heavy. He wasn't the heavy. Right. Right. So she was kidnapped by a different big bad. And because they left her there so long and Renard was screwing her, I don't know if it was rape or if she was consensual, but she realized she needed an ally there. And so Renard, I guess just being a follower by nature, she was able to turn him to her side against his current employer so that after she was quote unquote rescued by MI6, Renard was now her goon. Yeah, I mean, they tried some of that. It's just messy because it does introduce the whole Stockholm Syndrome thing. This oil baroness would never have plotted to kill her father had she not been taken prisoner by some terrorist. It was the betrayal that her father did not pay the ransom that made her say, hey, you know what? Screw you. I'm going to have you killed and I'm going to take over all the oil pipeline." Yeah, she got the grudge that way because I don't think they're going for she staged the whole kidnapping to begin with. I don't think they're going that far. That becomes way too many twists. Yeah, that's a pretzel I don't want to eat. Because her motivation is to kill her father and she keeps talking about how pissed off she was about the whole thing. And why she's going after M too because M left her there and her father followed M's advice, etc. Yeah, my point is that I think that this is a good performance of a not entirely well-written villainess. I like the idea that they wanted to go with a female villainess. I think it would have been cleaner not to do all of these surprise switchamaroos and just had a villainess we knew early and often was the super bad. I think that could have been just as fun, more fun, really. The other problem with her as the super bad is not only is her motivation for being evil pretty weak, because in the past we haven't really needed a motivation for our evil people to be evil. It's usually they want money or power. Here, she's evil because she was turned with Stockholm Syndrome and wants revenge, but she also wants to use a nuclear weapon to gain a monopoly on an oil pipeline. I was back to Stuart's Mad Libs thing with this. It's like, all right, we're (laughs) going to throw a nuclear bomb in. At first, I was excited. I'm like, wow, we haven't seen Bond go up against a nuke in a while. But then it's like for an oil pipeline, I'm like, okay, now we're kind of in the Goldfinger view to a kill monopoly thing. It's like, honestly, a whole bunch of Bond films put in a blender, hit puree, and then pour. Here's what I would say about this plot. If it were all to get revenge on her father, well, she killed him at the beginning. There's nothing else for her to do. So they also have to make her greedy. And so now that she has inherited his oil tycoonery, she is going to ruin the other competitions because everyone else has to pipe in through Istanbul. And her step one of taking on the reins is, I'm going to get a nuclear sub to kill everyone in Istanbul. Not Constantinople. Yes, so that they'll have to use my soul pipeline that doesn't go through Istanbul. That seems bizarrely greedy and also out of whack. Like, if you're killing entire cities, like, what would that do for the price of oil? I don't know. It fluctuates, you know. I mean, maybe that won't be people's priorities if you're melting down entire cities at that point. And it gets even worse because she also wants revenge against him. Yeah, it's all kinds of muddled. You're not wrong at all. This thing is convoluted like crazy, but I'm able to follow what's going on, and I don't have to necessarily need all the plot twists, but I do like they're trying to get this character out there, and I do like that it's more complicated than the last time. I'm so angry that the last time was what we had, and Goldeneye had actual plot and had people you care about, and a villain you loved not to like, and a great henchman. Here, I feel they're going more back to Goldeneye than Tomorrow Never Dies, and I'm thankful for it. 
I know you guys are confused, but I can follow everything that's going on. If you dissect it like we're doing now, like we're supposed to here at Now Playing, yeah, it's a whole bunch of horse shit, but it's a lot <laughs> of fun for me to watch it. I'm having a lot of fun watching this movie. I want to clarify something, Rock. I wasn't confused when I was watching this movie. I understood it all. I just oh. agreed it was horse shit because it's <laughs> unlike the good Bond films like GoldenEye, where there's twists and turns that are intelligible. Here there's twists and turns for twists and turns sake, and they're delivered in a poor manner. It is a poor way of doing it I'm with Stuart and his pretzel analogy. I don't go to Bond for story twists. I don't think that that's what it delivers. I think of it as being very formulaic. I like to see them plug in new things, and if they hit my sweet spot with the new things, I'm probably going to like it more. This is a step up from Tomorrow Never Dies, no doubt for me. I'm enjoying it more, partly because I really like being in this part of the world. This is kind of different for Bond. Usually, he goes to places that are kind of glamorous, got an exotic quality to it. This is like Borat country, where he winds up. All (laughs) these oil fields and even the casinos kind of dingy. I mean, this part of the world is one that they don't normally feature in any movies. And the fact that he's come here, I think that this has got a real mystique. It gives this movie a cloud, a vibe, an aura to it that I don't feel like any other Bond has. It's hitting something new here by being about the oil crisis and by being set in this part of the world. I think it is doing something new. That's the stuff that's intriguing me. But these plot twists, I don't care about this. The fact that so much is being made about is she or is she not the villainous and who's really in control, that is not important. They do themselves a disservice by spending so much time on that. It's only good because I like the actors portraying it. Not only Sophie Marceau, I'm going to give props to Robert Carlyle, an unconventional choice. The full Monty would not normally land someone a job as a Bond villain, I wouldn't think. But I kind of like the way he plays this guy. I kind of like his whole thing. The bullet in the head, and he's not able to feel things, and you know, he has this complicated relationship where he wants to have sex with Sophie, but he can't feel it anymore. I think that's a great metaphor for greed. I think that really explains why someone would keep doing more and more and more because intellectually their lust can't be satisfied because their body can't feel it. I think that's cool. I agree with you. I think Robert Carlyle is certainly up to the task here, that opening scene he has with the heart rock and things. I think that's a great way to present this villain. His character has a Bond quality to him, but it's not a fully formed villain for me. I don't really consider him the villain at all, and he's kind of playing the same thing over and over again, except for that one scene at the end when he has sex with Sophie Morceau. (laughs) And then he's ripped off because he can't feel it. Christmas comes once a year, but he never comes at all. But... My thing with him is I hear that he has a bullet in his brain that cut off his mandula oblongata. First of all, that takes me right to the water boy. But second of all, I'm thinking he's Darkman. Is this the first time the henchman has been a superhero? Because he has a superpower, his imperviousness to pain. But then I kind of thought, well, Oddjob seemed pretty impervious to pain and had a super hat. So I guess it's not... As ridiculous, Jaws had super teeth. Jaws was a superhero. This, this is very much in the tradition of that. But I disagree with you. I don't feel like they're trying to recall those kinds of super villainies. I think they're playing this down as much as they can. He's not withstanding amazing torture here. It's just sort of a quirk. Like I said, it's a character-defining way of thinking about what drives him and what he can and can't experience. But they don't have a lot of scenes of him withstanding superhuman abuse. I think the impervious to pain thing could have been 
much more used, but it wasn't because I think they also remind us that his body is still a human body. It's not impervious. So, like, for example, he may not feel that rock in his hand, but his hand is still burned by it. So we can't have him jump into a vat of oil to turn off a switch to do whatever. They just talk about it, how he's impervious to pain. It kind of is a cool thing to have for a Bond villain, but you can't use it because he still can get shot down. His body could still die. It's kind of silly if you think about it. Right. And it's Robert Carlyle, a, a little scrawny guy. He doesn't even have any physical heft to begin with. Yeah, they're not playing him for super henchman type acts. Ultimately, it makes him sort of a tragic figure. I actually kind of have a lot of empathy for him in a strange way. He's dying slowly, and he's trying to hold on to life as best he can, and he can. It's a strange character, and one I really like, but I'll agree with you, Brock. I don't feel like this script really features him well because they're trying to do that switchamaroo. And any of the other villains are any uh, and any of the other henchmen make even less impression. The only one I recognized was Goldie. You guys like drum and bass? Big industrial music guy right here. Goldie, the guy playing bullion, the guy with the gold teeth. Oh, the money where your mouth is guy. Yeah. He was a very hip music figure at this time. This would have been a big get in some ways. I mean, not obviously as an actor. He's, a, he's green at that and not very good to begin with. But he was at the peak of his musical form at this time. And I remember having many arguments with people about who's better, Tricky or Goldie. So it was a delight to see him here. Must be an L.A. thing. <laughs> I thought he had a great look, Stuart. I think he was really perfect for what he had to do in the movie. I didn't give his acting or performance a second blank because yeah. he did exactly what he was supposed to do in the movie. And I love how he's dispatched also in the later in the movie. It's just, he's fine. He made no impression on me. Kind of wish he'd done the song if he's good at music. Maybe it would have been an improvement, but we'll get there. <laughs> I'm really happy they brought Robbie Coltrane's character back as well. I think they found a way to use him this time that's smart, and I was sad when he died at the end because I really wanted him to come back in more Brosnan movies. I love Hagrid as much as the next guy. I was surprised he did come back. I was surprised he lived through the last one. It just felt like one of those Bond roles where he wouldn't have. So when he came back, I'm like, oh, is he like the new Felix Leiter for this new darker age? Instead of having a CIA friend, he's going to have this little Russian kind of frenemy that he goes along with, and then they kill him. Yeah, I'm totally with you. It was fun to see him. He has a better role here, honestly, than in Goldeneye. In Goldeneye, all he did was like, hey, you need to look for this Giannis guy. Here, he's actually a part of the plot. He comes back again and again. He has a lot of comedy with falling into the caviar pits and playing war with Electra and getting paid his one million. I think he is another highlight of this movie. And I'm very sad that he won't be returning for any more of the movies. I think that he came into his own as a character. And just as I was starting to like him, well, that's the end. That said, I think his comedy was a little too broad with the caviar and the insurance company's never going to believe this. It bordered on what was acceptable. I liked him, but I'm kind of glad he wouldn't come back because he could very quickly become J.J. Peppa all over the place. Look, you're not going to get me to say a nice thing about the dialogue in this movie. It's just uniformly bad jokes. <laughs> but, you know, you have John Cleese earlier in the movie doing broad comedy as well, albeit in the Q scenes, so we're all like, more accepting of it. But with Robbie Coltrane's injecting the humor in that helicopter spinny thingy underneath it, whatever you call that buzzsaw thing scene, I, I kind of liked him being there. You can't have him do action. He's a big man. He's not Daryl. But to have him crack the jokes there instead of Bond made more sense to me. If Bond was cracking all those silly jokes as he was doing all the action, it wouldn't have worked as well. 
Well, how well is it working? Honestly, as much as I like being here and like the people that are playing the roles and kind of like the vibe, what I come for Bond is fun. And I've got to say, a lot of the fun should be coming from the action, from the daring do. And that's where this movie really is letting me down here. I feel like this is a lot of Brosnan kind of wandering in this movie. I don't feel like he gets a lot of great fights. I'll agree that he doesn't have a lot of great fights. But truthfully, Brosnan's performance is the only thing engaging me here. I like him as a very serious protector of Elektra. I get that he's going to be portrayed the whole time, but when he's squaring off against Coltrane and saying, bury the top three cards, he's taking what he's doing very seriously, despite the fact, like you said, that sometimes the words coming out of his mouth are the opposite of the look in his eye. But other than that, yeah, there's not much action at all. The skiing scene here, we've seen some great skiing in Bond, and none of it ended with a giant inflatable walnut suit. So... Go, go, gadget coat, right? <laughs> exactly. I believe he was, quote, well-suited. I mean, ugh, I'm telling you guys. <laughs> terrible. Well, I got the impression of these action scenes. Once they started getting started, I kind of liked how they took the situation and they tried to find something new with it with these parahawks. I kind of liked that idea. But... There's no way you could possibly not think, I feel an action scene coming on almost every time. When you first see the helicopter with the buzzsaws, you know they're coming back. When they finally get into the middle of these action scenes, I kind of enjoy what they're trying to do or how clever ways they're doing the scenes and staging them and the stunt work and all that. But it does kind of feel like it's time for an action scene. It's time for an action scene. Here comes an action scene. And that's unfortunate. Because they've telegraphed, at least in my mind, that Electra is the big bad, you can't put her in danger. It doesn't make any sense for people to be trying to kill her. Hence why none of these scenes really are that exciting and why Bond spends more time chasing her security people than he does trying to do the job he's been hired to do, which is to protect her from danger. She's not in danger, and we don't think she's in danger. And so I think that's a big reason why a lot in this middle is just not engaging me. I'm waiting for her big reveal as she's inviting M to come on over. And I mean, it's just so transparent what she's doing here. We know that she is about to unleash her secret identity and we're just waiting for the movie to catch up to us. What I'm waiting for is the movie to get to my biggest memory of this movie, <laughs> Denise Richards. <laughs> oh boy. I'm going to go out on a big limb here. Now I've made some dangerous confessions that invite listener backlash, but none are going to be bigger, I think, than saying... I am in love with Denise Richards. Oh, I don't think anyone could fault you for that, Arnie. I think she's, you know, especially at this time, she was gorgeous. She was wild things and all that kind of thing. She was Starship Troopers. She was terrible uniformly in all of them, but fuck, was she hot? Yeah, she's gorgeous. And she wasn't so prissy like Nev Campbell that she wouldn't take her top off in a wild thing. She was the one who did go there. I mean, if we ever get to Starship Troopers, and as much as Jacob... Praise for RoboCop. I pray for a Starship Troopers reboot that's rumored so we can get there. She's awful in it, but I love her. I was seeing just about every Denise Richards film that came out, including this one. But she's never been good. And this is perhaps her absolute worst performance to date. She will get worse. But this was the first one where I'm like, you ain't that pretty, sweetheart. <laughs> 
Yeah, she is as awful as you promised, Arnie. I mean, I remember early on saying Mary Goodnight was the worst Bond girl, and you were like, oh, no, 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 just wait. And you're absolutely right. Let's get Mary down from that hook. Let's take Tanya Roberts, get her off the hook. <laughs> you are all right, girl. Go run. You're free. Go enjoy being the second and third worst Bond girls. you got a long mile between you and what's happening on the screen. This is a disaster. Here's the funny thing, though. I remembered having this attitude when I watched it the first time. But having seen all of these Bond films in such a compressed time, I now see that she is just one in a litany of Bond girls as written. I mean, from so many of these previous movies, did Bond have the girl with him who just happened to have the smarts to do what needed to be done at the end? And it's not the first time we've seen really horrible casting of a supposedly intelligent woman. But the two combined, plus Denise Richards' dead eyes, I mean, I don't know if maybe she was able to act better that she was attracted to Nev Campbell than to Piers Brosnan, but it's just a toxic combination on screen. And what little air was in the tires of this film goes out when she appears halfway in. I'm going to say it. I do not believe her for one second as a rocket scientist, nuclear scientist, not in the least bit. She sashays over to Pierce Brosnan with her hips wagging back and forth. I'm like, really? Come on. The plausibility factor is gone. But Arnie, you just said something in that last thing about well, we've seen a lot of Bond girls in the past that are not anywhere plausible in their roles. And while Denise Richards is certainly down the bottom of the barrel, I have never hated her as much as most people do in this movie. I am not going to say she's good. I'm not going to go on that limb, but I'm going to say I don't think she's as bad as, well, apparently you two do think, and a lot of other people do too. I certainly tolerate her in some scenes, but after the first scene she's here, she hardly talks and does anything. She just keeps her mouth shut and she runs around. It's not like she's spurting all this dialogue about rocket fuel and nuclear this and that, blah, blah, blah. She's calling out how close they are and so, or whatever, in that vehicle, in the pipe, etc. She's hardly doing anything. So why is she so bad except for this one scene? And I gotta disagree with you, Stuart. I can't put Denise Richards up on that hook because, like Brock says, she is so inconsequential to this plot that I think Goodnight is still the worst because, I mean, she just elongates this plot needlessly and creates bad situations. Whereas here, Denise Richards is a helpful character just a really poor choice of actress. Just, it's a terrible casting, but I don't know if that's enough to put her on the hook. Uh, whatever, guys. You can slice it any way you want it. She's an incredible detriment. A nuclear bomb going off in the middle of this movie, and it's, it's <laughs> ridiculous. Yes, there's a long string of Bond women that aren't great actresses, and they've hurt their movies because of it. Spy Who Loved Me took an incredible hit because as fun as I thought the East-West sex games should have been, it was killed by that performance. This is another one where it's killed by the performance. When she shows up dressed in the Laura Croft outfit, claiming that Bond isn't a nuclear physicist, how can you do anything but chortle? How can you do anything but roll your eyes? It's terrible. On one level, I respect what you guys are saying because, yes, it's always been a parade of European beauty pageant contestants, and now it just seems like in the Brosnan era, they're going with Maxim cover girls. That's the upgrade. Is like, oh, we'll get people that could actually be on a magazine cover that you kind of know, but you have no respect for. Terry Hatcher, Denise Richards, they're one step 
up from beauty pageant contestants, but this is the worst. This is the worst. You promised the worst, and she wins. She's a better actress than Ursula Andress. Stuart, the difference between Janice Richards and Barbara Bach is Barbara Bach is the lead in that movie with Roger Moore. So her performance sinks the movie for a lot of people. And I gave it a weak recommend because no matter how much I enjoy the rest of it, she really weighs it down. Here, Denise Richards really just speaks in the first couple of scenes she's in and the rest of it, she's just there. Honestly, they could have gotten rid of her in the caviar scene and we wouldn't have missed her at all. But Bond needs to fall in love with someone again at the end, even though he fell in love with the villain, he has to have sex with the woman at the end of the movie because it's a James Bond movie. So they got to keep her around. So she doesn't sink the movie to me because she's where I'm going to use Arnie's word because it's perfect. She's inconsequential. She's there at the nuclear sub talking about hydrogen gas. She's there trying to defuse <laughs> bombs and pipelines. She's present all the time. And it is one of those just everything coming out of her mouth. You'd rather rip out your eardrums than listen to it. I mean, it's just horrible. <laughs> it's really terrible. <laughs> I'm not going to ever really defend her much. I was just surprised how she didn't ruin everything. She only ruined what she was in. <laughs> Clearly, the fact that you guys know her work probably is helping out here. I haven't seen Wild Things. I don't even know what she's been in before. I know her strictly as her reputation of Charlie Sheen's ex-wife. That's it. I don't know her as a quote-unquote actress, and I don't want to. I think part of the reason that she is not in the movie very much is because they take James out of the movie for a good period here. Because the two of them go on this oil pipeline ride where they choose not to defuse a bomb, and then it becomes the M show. Yeah, they did that on purpose. They said to themselves, you know, we have Dame Judi Dench here, who's quite a good actress. Why don't we give her something to do? I think that's a terrible mistake. The James Bond films have always had a cadre of cute supporting characters that we like to see, but I never wanted to see Money Penny go with him on a mission. Trying to make the Bond films an ensemble is a mistake, and I'm surprised it was the producer's choice and not Judy Dench going, by the way, I have an Oscar, you want me, I need more to do. I don't know really where the impetus came. I know Pierce Brosnan was very stern about, I want scenes to play, and I want actors to play against. I don't know about what Judy Dench wanted. I do know, if they're ever going to tell us M's real name, now is the time to do it. The fact that Electra keeps calling her M all the time doesn't make any sense to me. If she's so close to the family, why does she call her by her first name? Because if we started calling her like Margaret, no one would know who she's talking about. But if she appeals to M in that scene, M, will you come here for yourself? She should have looked her right in the eye and said, Mary, please come to my side. It would have been so much better. When we don't learn her real name here, it bothers me because they're using her so much. It doesn't make any sense that they call her M the entire time. I thought they were doing this because M was going to be the one to have to take out Sophie Marceau. I was surprised that it falls on Bond to put Electra down. That's the shocker. I'm like, well, they always have to bring in a woman to kill the woman because we've never seen Bond kill the woman. You know, even on the top, you guys kind of pointed out that he sort of fights her, but at the end of the day, she got stuck in a tree. She was killed more by natural causes, not by Bond directly. Here, it is Bond directly. And it was an emotional kill for him. You guys mentioned last podcast how he takes a moment with Terry Hatcher. Well, he does it again here with Sophie Morceau, and then he goes does his job. I love how he does that moment and then gets up that top of that wall and dives right down. I think that's just a one-two punch of, I'm James Bond, and I have a job to do now. And I love that entire sequence. I agree with what you're saying about 
if you're going to bring an M here, make her do something. Because why wouldn't they frisk her and take off that GPS card? <laughs> wouldn't they take that out of her pocket when they throw her in the prison? But with Bond, they get a wonderful scene of him killing Elektra. I love that scene. Arnie, do you carry the way? Nope. <laughs> At this point, the movie's left me cold. I think it's silly that they're using this bomb to kill Judy Dench when they could just shoot her the way Rinald was shot. The action, the plotting, the acting, it's all leaving me pretty cold. And so by the time we get to the death of the bads, I'm checking my watch. I know I'm not recommending this film. I just want it to be over. I agree with you. The sub fight with Bernard and Bond against each other, it doesn't really matter. At that point, the movie is over for me because Elektra's dead. The fight with Bernard is just a big end of the movie James Bond set piece thing. I would have preferred if they'd done a callback and have Renard come and attack him and Christmas when they were alone together like all the old Connery Bonds used to do and even a couple of the more ones instead of having it all be one giant climax like this. I don't care about this plot that's hatched because you haven't given me a clear-cut villain with a clear-cut ideal about what they want. The movie's called The World Is Not Enough. Who wants the world? I have no idea what Renard wants. I thought that he just wanted to have some feeling again to sleep with Elektra. He's more upset that the fact that Bond has killed her in this end than he is that the subplot is not hatching. I don't know what he stands to gain by ruining the pipelines of competing oil companies. I mean, he has nothing invested in this at this point. It's just dumb. You know, the world is not enough. That line should have been used to deliver about Bond versus Renard. The movie peaked when Elektra was killed. That should have been the final death. Renard should have already been dealt with. I'm glad you brought the title up again, Stuart, because when Bond is in that contraption and he says the world is not enough, he makes a comment, family motto. It actually is the Bond family motto. It's on the crest. We learn about that in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's also in the book. And so that's where they got the title from the movie. And I noticed that when we did on Her Majesty's Secret Service and they were doing the family crests. And I was like, oh, that's the title of that movie that comes later on. Yep. That said... I still am upset that these are all the same James Bond and not four different agents who take the name James Bond when they get the designation 007, but oh well. We're going to be talking about that again in two movies, I guarantee. But you know, this movie's let me down. My girl, Denise Richards, has let me down more than usual. The action has let me down. But Denise Richards wasn't the only girl who let me down. I have been a fan of Garbage since their first album, and... I actually bought this soundtrack unheard because Garbage was on it. It was the first James Bond CD I ever bought was for Garbage because I wanted to have a complete Garbage discography. And, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, did that let me down too. Yeah, I don't care for the song either. It has Thunderball problems to me. You know, the same way that I felt like they tried to inflate Tom Jones' not very great tune with all this over-orchestration. This, to me, sounds like the most bombastic cover of the Carpenters' hit Superstar. You know that song? Superstar. It sounds like a cover of that song by someone recovering from dental surgery. I mean, she's like, <laughs> she's like, growl like, it's supposed to be Hellcat, but it really sounds like toothache, doesn't it? It's like, <laughs> and I'm like, get out of bed, Shirley. Come on, let's do another take with you on your feet. Maybe get some Red Bull in you. I mean, she doesn't sing the song well, and the tune is not very good either. And it's frustrating because, you know, by the end of the 90s, there were a lot of cool bands doing that spy electronica music. Portishead, Morchiba, Bjork, Gold. Goldfrap, Sneaker Pimps even sampled the Goldfinger score for 
Six Underground. There was a lot of cool bands that could have really delivered you a very James Bondian electronica song. This ain't it. I just don't know what they were going for here, but this is not the perfect marriage of 90s and 60s. I just wish I knew what her inspiration was, because knowing Garbage's music as well as I do, they could have delivered what you're talking about, Stuart, but it's like either they were directed to, or they felt, since they're doing a James Bond, they had to go back to the James Bond songs of old. You mentioned Thunderball, and yeah, they're trying to harken back to that sound from Goldfinger and... Thunderball and all of those old-timey songs, and that is not their wheelhouse. And you should understand, they didn't write this song. That makes perfect sense. That explains everything, because I'm like, this doesn't sound like them. And if they didn't write it, it makes perfect freaking sense. No, the people that wrote it were people that wrote Thunderball and some of the old themes. Yes, and it's the same guy. And the last time they rejected the Tady Lang kind of song that was very Bondian for the Sheryl Crow for a variety of reasons, and one of them was it sounded like too much like a James Bond song. This one here, my line on this song has been the same, and it's pretty simple. It's kind of like a pretty obvious thing to say. The song is garbage, and I have never heard garbage because I've heard this song, Arnie, and you're saying all these great things about this band, and that's great, but because of this song, I've never pursued anything by garbage because I did not like the song. This is my introduction to them, and that's where it stops. That's how bad the song is to me. I do like the melody when they use it underneath in the movie, but man, do I dislike this song. It's like one of my bottom five of James Bond songs. I hate this song. I can't say I hate it. It's forgettable, but I'm surprised that you hadn't heard them because their biggest hits were before this. Yeah, they peaked. This was their last quote-unquote hit. They're still around. They even had a comeback this year, but I have the album. Yeah. (laughs) Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend The World Is Not Enough? Stuart, There are a lot of things that I like in this one. It is an improvement over Tomorrow Never Dies. It is not enough. (laughs) I think that's an easy one to say here. What is good about this is not enough to get me over the hump here. As much as I enjoy these characters, the story kind of fails them. The attempts to create this surprise mystery, Switchamaru in the middle ends up doing more damage than delight. Ultimately, we could have used some more spice, some more action, some more colorful henchmen, not played the guess of who's the real henchman. I think we should have had five other guys and five other scenes that had us pointing out to crazy, cool characters that drove the plot forward. I feel like Brosnan looks lost here. I feel like he feels trapped in between wanting to do what Dalton was doing and what Moore was doing. And I feel like he is failing for me as a Bond now for two movies now. I know you guys like him, but I'm just not connecting to this guy. And it's not his fault. It's the fact that these movies are letting him down. But I'm really starting to think that he may be my least favorite Bond. And so it's a weak not recommend for World Is Not Enough, but I'm more concerned about this Brosnan legacy at this point. Arnie. I will be honest. I had mentioned the first time and the only previous time I saw this movie and the negative experience I had. But after Tomorrow Never Dies, which I gave a weak recommend to, I came in with my expectations completely reset. I came in thinking, could Brosnan be the first Bond who gets more than two films and I give him a 100% recommendation? Again, Tomorrow Never Dies, weak recommend, but it was coasting on a lot of GoldenEye goodwill, and I just came in here expecting a good bond, honestly. I came in thinking these last two have been really much more along the lines of what I wanted. I remember Denise Richards being toxic. I remembered nothing else, except for that Christmas line. So (laughs) I 
really had high hopes coming in for both this and the garbage song, which I also couldn't remember. And this whole movie let me down. I'm now worried that Brosnan's going to go down in flames like so many of the previous ones. And I remember not having great experiences with Die Another Day either. So I'm going to give this a not recommend. I'm hoping we don't have another one as just plodding and dull as this one. That's something coming from you. You were a Brosnan fan, but it sounds like you're agreeing with me. He could be the worst Bond. Oh, no, no. I mean, Lazenby will always be my worst Bond. Well, I think, Stuart, you hit on something there, is that Brosnan's scripts are a challenge for him. And I love Pierce Brosnan's role. I like what he's doing here a lot. I think he is getting James Bond here. He is a James Bond I like. I see what you're saying, that he's playing pieces of this and that, but I like his intensity. I don't like it when he wiggles. I don't like when he's, in, he's so intense that he like he's shaking, like with Renard in the pit. <laughs> Wherever that was when Denise Richard busts Bond for not being who he is. He's so angry because he's so in love with Electra that he's shaking with intensity. That's not my Bond. But the cold and the whole scene when he confronts Electra there and the scene when he has Electra when he kills her, those are moments for me that are very much James Bond. And I like Pierce Brosnan in this role. I think he looks still looks the role. I think he still acts the role. And... I very much like him as Bond. The script here is weaker than I would like. I enjoy watching this movie. I like the parts of it. There are enough moments in here for me to really enjoy. And honestly, you guys, if you've watched this more than once, I think it plays better. That should never be for any movie. It should play well the first time, and then you get more every time you watch it. But this one here, I liked it the first time I watched it because of the bad will of Tomorrow Never Dies, as I mentioned earlier. But when I watch this movie, I have a good time, and I like it. I see it is by the numbers here and there, but there's enough good here for me to give it a recommend, and I'm going to recommend it. It is a flawed movie. It is a weaker recommend because of all the flaws. But I think this movie gets a worse rep than it needs to. It's not an Octopussy bad rep. I think Octopussy gets a shaft. I think Octopussy's great. But this one, if you like James Bond movies, there's a lot here to like. And so why not watch it again and see for yourself? I like it. Recommend. The world is not enough to make me watch this a third time. So please let us know what you think by going to our forums. You can find a link to that at our homepage. You can also join the conversation at Facebook and Twitter. And please go to iTunes. Leave us a positive review on the James Bond feed so other fans like yourself can find us and join in the conversation as well. And you can hear Stuart and I on Books and Nachos, reviewing all the Ian Fleming James Bond books from start to finish. And we're getting towards the end there, too, aren't we, Stuart? Yeah, yeah. this week you're doing Property of a Lady in 007 in New York. Scrambled eggs for everyone. You'll know what that means if you listen to the show. And also, at the request of people impacted by that horrible flood on the East Coast, people without power and without internet sent messages from their phone and such asking for us to extend the silver and gold donation period. So we have done that at their request. That is available until November 15th now. Now playing, we'll return with Die Another Day. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing James Bond retrospective series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. 
You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's probably nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Christmas Comes Once a Year was the moment I realized I could never watch another James Bond movie with my mother ever again. And the second one is... Um, <laughs> was, it more, was it more uncomfortable when she goes, that's more than me at this age? Wow. <laughs> wow. Now I'm feeling all uncomfortable all over again. Right, exactly. Oh my gosh. Let's Ooh. publicly discuss Brock's parents' sex life. I agree. We were talking about her menopausal cycle yesterday. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> And this this one a also little marks- lubricant goes a long way at that age. Okay, that's enough. The show <laughs> is way more than enough what? at this point. Okay, yes. so <laughs> moving on. So, <laughs> um, world is not enough. Nineteen ninety nine, the last film of the millennium, which was a big. It was the deal very the last film. It came out on December thirty first. The last Bond film of the millennium. Okay. Yes. I would love to get into this movie, Arnie. Is the plot summary enough? I tried, Stuart. I really tried to do something as cool as you with the segue into the plot summary. I just, just <laughs> I epic wasn't failed. Bad. I didn't say nothing. It was good. I, I'm just, fine just with it. give up. I, I gave up years ago trying to be as cool as Stuart. I'm fine being second <laughs> fiddle on the show. I'm cool with it. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Kidnapped and held for ransom by terrorist Renard. If I get through this podcast without calling him retard, I'm doing very good. (laughs) (laughs) Rather than pay the ransom, M convinced King to use his daughter as bait to catch the terrorist. (laughs) You shouldn't have said that. I won't be able to (laughs) get myself during any time you say Renard now. It's just like a trigger for the mute button. (laughs) Let me put it together. Oxygen. 
Deep breath. Okay. Please continue. And Bond spends time unwrapping his Christmas present as as credits roll. (laughs) As crescents roll. (laughs) I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you go after you do a Pillsbury impersonation? (laughs) So do you recommend... <laughs> oh man. <laughs> mm, that kind of night. Ah, my apologies to the editor for all of this. Mm, I hear that he has a bullet in his brain that cut off his mandula oblongata. First of all, that takes me right to the water boy. But second of all, I'm thinking he's Dark Man. <laughs> You're just full of the weird references. Well, all these, obs- <laughs> these B movies is going, going crazy with them. I'm sorry, but if you hear Mandula Oblongata and do not picture Adam Sandler tackling Colonel Sanders, then you have not lived. I I've seen the Water Boy. And I'm, yes. Yeah, I, and I'm apparently living just fine. I, yeah, <laughs> I feel good about my life choices. Actually, <laughs> I liked the Water Boy fine. I just that's not the first thing I think of when I, th- I hear Mandula Oblongata. I can't even say it. What What do you think of when you hear of Medulla Oblongata? I think of the Water Boy. It's like a huge piece of the Water Boy is Adam Sandler and Colonel Sanders saying Medulla Oblongata. That's that is the movie. Yeah, we that's why I'm not going to see that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Until our Adam Sandler retrospective. Totally. Uh, no. Grown ups too. Next year, guys, we can do it. No. No. <laughs> no, we can't. I, I, I got to wait for Happy Gilmore too, but then you try to keep me away. They've talked about. It. <laughs> I think I think the other co-hosts are now playing. Will keep you away. We'll have no one to record the podcast with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Oddball kind of had the odd job. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> I said it that way because of the history of it. I mean, good. I I think it's hysterically called it odd is job. Amazing. I mean, odd, oddball, whatever. Odd. <laughs> 